Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. Today, I'm with the usual Mark and Perrin. How's it going, guys? Fantastic. The usual makes me sound a little underwhelming, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like, a, it's, it's not the first days anymore, Perrin, you know, it's like, it's not the honeymoon period anymore. We just got to deal with that. And, and that's it, you know, but actually today we're going to go back to the honeymoon period that you had with mm-hmm. online marketing. Nice transition, right? And if you want all the show notes for this episode, they're going to be on authorityhacker.com slash Perrin dash origins, which is a bit of a video game name, actually. But today we are going to talk about essentially how you built your first successful site and lost everything, right? And what happened more in details, because I think that's a story a lot of people have followed back in the day, but maybe some people have started online marketing since then. And maybe also with time, you have more lessons that you drew from it. And maybe you're not as, as sour about the experience as you were when you just lost everything. Maybe there was some positive learning experiences in, in what happened here. So I think it's, it's kind of cool to like go back to this and be like, well, in the end, that wasn't so bad, maybe. Or maybe that was terrible and I was an idiot. You'll tell us. So take the floor. Yeah. So first I've called. I'm going to try to get through this without coughing and hacking too much into the mic, but I definitely apologize because it will for sure happen. You guys are going to have to bear with me. Maybe we'll edit some out, but it's going to be a little bit annoying. Uh, this is a story. your perspective on flu shots at all? Or- yeah. Like the second time I've gotten sick in like three months. Yeah, it definitely has. <laughs> anyway, you guys just stop giving me such a hard time in this podcast. I- If you think they give me too hard of a time, write a comment. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Anyway, this is a story that we've written on the blog, or I've I've written about on the blog pretty extensively, and some of you followed it on Niche Pursuits. We haven't really podcasted about it, and I agree with Gail that it's my hindsight is a little bit different now a couple years in, or actually it's been four years now because this really all went down in like 2014. So my view on this whole story and losing such an insane amount of money to me at the time is a lot different looking back on it four years down the road and all the stuff that happened in between. So I feel like it's a good story to tell people there are lots of good lessons to be learned. I feel like the best place to start is mostly at the beginning, not the very beginning, not like when I was born, but when I got out of school, If you didn't know, I have a degree in poetry. And it was also like the middle of the recession in 2008. And there was no jobs anywhere. I had just moved to Chicago. And when I went there, I had like a nest egg of, I think, $8,000. And between when I got in Chicago and I finally got a job, I had sent out 700 resumes and I was literally like putting on a suit and going down the street, knocking on doors at every business I could find looking for any kind of job. When I finally got a job, I had like $35 in my bank account. That job was crap. So I quit that to do like freelance writing after six months or something. Quit that to go to grad school. And I quit that to, or no, I didn't quit that. I graduated, <laughs> but <laughs> after that, yeah, it feels like it. 
like there was a, so it was this process of just being broke in Chicago for such a long time. And I finally got what I thought was a really good job. It was a consulting job. And like back then consulting was like this magical term. I really didn't know what they did. I just knew that they probably made a lot of money, you know, and they had like had these glamorous offices. And when I went for the job interview, everybody was wearing suits and it was just like this huge building. And I had no business being in there, but I killed the writing test and they really liked me. I ended up getting the job and it paid like, I don't know, $50,000 a year. I was like a junior analyst or something. And I was really, really excited because it was this quote unquote good job. And I had never had any money even close to that. You know, I've been writing for like $8 an hour in Chicago, literally digging in my couch for grocery money. And so having an actual salary up in like the 50K range was a massive deal for me. So like the first week I was super excited about it. First paycheck, I was super excited about it. I was like, man, I'm never gonna have to worry about money again. I'm set. And slowly I started to kind of like have more and more negative feelings and those positive feelings started to fade away. And it was about at the three month mark where I was like, you know what? I hate this. Like I cannot do this for the rest of my life. And I'm surprised it took me three months because like knowing myself now, it was an experience that's just the opposite of everything that I want in life. But I didn't know that then, you know? Having so worked there, do you now know what consultants do or are you still in the dark about that? I do know what consultants do, although I felt like I was pretending the whole time <laughs> the whole time I was there. So do consultants um, pretend? I, that's what I've always wondered if they just all kind of have that feeling but stretched over like a longer time frame yeah. and then everyone just kind of buys into the bullshit. That particular consultancy was like we had lots of deliverables. We were doing uh, communications material for like big Fortune 500 companies. So we would do all of their like insurance communication to their employees. So it really felt more like a content agency to me than a consultancy. But other like areas, I did feel like we're just kind of like going in there and talking and doing a PowerPoint presentation. And then we were just getting paid a bunch of billable hours. Different than like a small agency that you would find where you kind of have to like prove your salt. This was like a huge global agency who'd been around for a while and all the contracts. It just felt like a bunch of rich people going into meeting rooms and that was like the whole job for a lot of it, you know? Yeah. Did you have a lot of student debt back then? Like how was the pressure oh, yeah. from that oh, at yeah. this point? Yeah. My student debt actually was the same number that I lost. So it was $120,000. Or actually, it was about $100,000. When I got married, it turned into one hundred and twenty dollars because my, my wife brought in like $20,000 worth of student debt. I had $100,000 worth of student debt. So yeah, there was a lot of pressure to like be financially comfortable because before I got the job, I had like debt collectors calling me all the time and like I defaulted on a student loan because I was making $8 an hour, you know? I was like paying what I could, but in the middle of the recession making $8 an hour living in Chicago. It was crazy. You know, I was like, I was paying rent. And then I remember actually when I started dating my wife, she used to PayPal me money so I could buy vegetables to like supplement my ramen noodles <laughs> because I just had no money. But I had Sounds this job. Like Mark and I, when we started in, uh, in Budapest as well. Like I think Mark's except, dream except was... without the vegetables, you mean? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Mark doesn't eat vegetables regardless of how much money he has. But his number one goal in life was to be able to afford a bottle of Diet Coke every day. 
and now he drinks way too much. So I guess the success is kind of bad for his house. So, yeah. Started from the bottom. Now we here. You know. <laughs> now he gets three bottles per day. That's like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I I can't really handle the the success, unfortunately. In that, that regard, yeah, yeah. It's like it's just like he just pops it up like champagne everywhere, you know. Like yeah, the funny yeah, thing, the first time I met Mark, I'm pretty exaggerating in the slightest. That's it. <laughs> I'm actually yeah, under, like, underwhelmingly representing it. Like it's it's way more than that. Yeah, it's very impressive. So I'm sitting in this cubicle and I am making good money for the first time in my life but I'm realizing that I I hate it. So I've got this dilemma. I really don't want to quit because I don't want to be broke again. And I don't know what else I would do. I have a poetry degree. I don't know what other kind of jobs I can get. I also just hate being there. I feel like it's soul crushing and I feel like I'm sacrificing my own happiness. So I start like looking at business stuff and I kind of quickly realize that some sort of entrepreneurship is a good solution, but it seems really, really hard. So for the next six months or so, like literally every commute, every lunch break, every time I'm on the train, nights and weekends, I'm just reading everything I can about business and like how people are making money. Somewhere... In that process, I Google, this can be funny to you guys, I Google make money online. <laughs> so I'm just like in the SERPs looking at the blogs that are ranking for make money online, which is where lots of people start, you know? Yep. Like a lot of people who like come to our blog, they're in this exact situation, don't like their job. They know people are somehow making money online. They just Google it and people start showing up, you know? And so I started reading all these blogs. And when I first started reading them, it, Seemed a little bit crazy. I didn't really believe that it was actually possible. You know, like when you look at Make Money Online, you inevitably come across like some blogs, but also just like tons of sales pages for products that are like 50,000 words long, have like big yellow buttons every, you know, four or five paragraphs or something. And so it feels a little bit scammy. So I didn't know if it was actually legit, but I couldn't stop reading. And as I started reading more, I found a few blogs that I connected with. And they were the ones that you would probably expect, like the Moz blog, Brian Dean, Smart Passive Income, the big ones that I think everybody kind of finds. I don't think there was Brian Dean back then, though. I think uh, Brian started like a, a year and a half maybe before us. And I, I think you, you were already at Niche Pursuits. This is this was in 2013. So maybe. Yeah, I don't know. There was no Brian Dean. Yeah, so I was probably reading Smart Passive Income for sure. And who else was I reading then? It's probably Matthew Spencer. Matthew Woodward or something. Not Matthew Woodward. I don't know. I can't remember. It was, uh, I think Pat Flynn was a big one. And But anyway, one of them was Niche Pursuits. And so I started reading this blog, Niche Pursuits, and it appealed to me because of the case study that, Spencer had published when I first started reading it. It must have been in 2012-2013 or at like the beginning of 2013. And what Spencer had done was he documented every single part of his process for making a website online. And he revealed the website so that I could go look at it. And then he published all of the earnings, right? And I'm sure some people had done that before. I had never seen anything like that when I was like 
on this first part of my journey. So it like captivated me. And I started reading Niche Pursuits every chance I got. I bought the software Spencer was selling. I even emailed Spencer a couple times. And like we had like some very tiny exchanges. He surely had no idea who I was. That was Niche Site Project 1. And then he decided to do Niche Site Project 2. Niche Site Project 2, he wanted to have a student come on. And the way he did that was he took everybody who had bought his software, he put them into a raffle, he chose 10 finalists, and those people wrote a short essay that was published on his blog, and then the readers voted on who they wanted to win, right? So out of pure dumb luck, I won the raffle, or I was in those 10, and then my essay resonated with the readers of Niche Pursuits, and uh, I was chosen to be a student. This was in 2013. So you guys probably hadn't even started. You guys were probably doing your agency around this time still, right? When was it? 2013. Yeah. Beginning of 2013. When did we start? Like 2011? Something like this? Um, so yeah, I think we were like basically halfway through our agency. Like It was growing quite fast at this point. And we were doing, uh, I mean, we were learning a lot of the stuff that we talk about, like the more scaling stuff, et cetera, working on big sites and so on. So yeah, that was the time. So we, so I start working with Spencer. We start doing this, this niche site project too. He starts teaching me what he knows about making websites. And I start this dinky little shaving site called apennyshaved.com. It's no longer live. Somebody probably picked up the domain <laughs> or something. But There's a PBN on it now. Is it really? No, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Or something, you know? Yeah, it wouldn't shock me at all. If you like want to see the cycle of life for websites, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably on Wayback Machine on archive.org if you guys want to go look at it. Very different from what we do now. Dinky little site. I was writing like thousand word articles on best safety razors and that sort of thing. But I was learning all these little skills like the niche research and how to write an article, how to put on a website, like the basic stuff that you need to create a website that makes money online. And I got this website up beginning of 2013. And this was, it was so much easier back in 2013. It's like funny to look I back on question, it now. Actually, like, why did yeah. you need Spencer to, like, why did you need to win this contest if Spencer had documented everything? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's actually one of the reason that people read out, our blog. It was that I had looked at the contest. I had tried like three times on my own and I had failed completely. So if you go all the way back to the beginning of Niche Site Project 2, and we can link to it in the show notes to like the blog post where all the essays were written. I think one of the reasons I won that is because in that little essay, I said, I've tried a whole bunch and I cannot make this work. I need some help. And a bunch of people in the comments were like, I'm in the exact same boat. I've tried this on my but own. Why? What felt before? Like, what changed this time? What made it different? Because it I think, doesn't yeah. feel like... I mean, I don't think there was a secret sauce that you came in and Spencer gave you, right? I think when you're new, you just miss little things and you have questions. And in order to answer every little question, you have to go do deep research into every little blog post. When I started working with Spencer, I could ask him a question directly 
and then he would give me an answer and it just speeds up the process. So if I had kept doing it on my own, I probably would have figured it out. It would have just taken a whole lot longer. But there was like a lot of little different things, say in keyword research, where I was picking out like e-commerce keywords. I didn't understand commercial intent. I didn't really understand what like keyword competition was or like, or um, keyword difficulty was. And I didn't understand what a good market was for affiliate revenue, you know? So like... I didn't understand, for example, like I had started like a poetry site. I didn't understand you couldn't make money there and there was no affiliate revenue there. It was like my first shot. It was just something I was interested in. I started a nursing site, which is probably a really good idea because there's lots of leads in there. Yeah, but it was super competitive. I knew nothing about marketing or link building. I didn't know what it would take, right? So I just had these gaps in my knowledge and all the stuff that I was doing that I thought I was doing right, I was really doing wrong. And so having a mentor who understood the game a little bit better could help me fill in those gaps, just sped up what I think is the natural process of learning internet. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting point you made about having all those sort of little questions, you know, when you write a blog post, like how long should the title be? And like these, these kind of somewhat insignificant questions in, in the early stages, but you just end up going down like the rabbit hole of blog posts and forums and spending hours trying to solve this problem that doesn't really make much difference or move the needle at that stage. I found that, you know, having mentors and people that knew what they were doing around in the early days was more about keeping me focused on what I should be doing as opposed to, you know, going down those rabbit holes. Yeah. And there are like a thousand of those questions. And for every one of those questions, you're going to find like half a dozen different opinions on it, you know? So I think it's good just to have someone who kind of knows what works to just give you that direction for sure. Yeah. I wish I had someone. It's like I just just tried to figure it out. It took ages, but you know, finally it worked. But like, yeah. yeah, it was a lot of reading. Like, if you know me, you know I read forums and everything like a lot, a lot, a lot. So yeah, that helps. Anyway, what happened? I started the shaving site, and back in 2013, it seems like Google, it was just so much easier. So I started the shaving site. I wrote like 15 articles, and that was it. I wrote them all myself. I didn't pay for any content. I just like, I was actually using my hours at the consultancy <laughs> to like write these articles. Uh, shame on me, but I don't feel bad at all because they treated me like crap. And I did some quote unquote link building. We will get into that a little bit later. So not real link building, but I did what I thought at the time was link building. And the site started to rank. A couple, I think maybe three-month mark, I earned my first dollar. At the six-month mark, I was earning like $600. And then at the seven- or eight-month mark, which was Christmas, which is always big for Amazon affiliate sites, I earned $1,300. And I earned that for several different months. And I hadn't, at up until then, had the idea to grow the site. So I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is this works. What can I do now? And I just like let it sit there. And then Spencer at some point was like, why don't you just publish more articles? You can, you know, rank for more keywords. And I was like, oh my God, that's such a brilliant idea. Such a genius. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I put, I don't know, 30, 40 more articles. Site grew. And eventually in the summer of 2014, the site was making like $4,000 a month and growing. At that point, I started to understand the value of really big sites. Like if a site with 
30, 40 articles on it that I've done like minimal marketing on could make $4,000 a month. What could a huge site do? So I was looking at sites like Art of Manliness, like how can I replicate some of the bigger players in this niche? And I was just getting really, really, really excited. About I have a question, August, actually. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. I have a question. Like back in the day, Spencer was focusing more on like smaller sites, right? I mean, that was kind of his specialty. Like when he saw you make $4,000 a month, how was it compared to his portfolio? And did it, like, how did you and he feel about it? Back then, Spencer was always just really happy for me that, um, you know, like he hasn't ever, to my knowledge, had like a really big home run style site, like health ambition or anything. He has at several points had really solid portfolios of websites that have earned good money. Yeah, I was Spencer, following actually. I was listening to a podcast back then playing Guild Wars 2, I think I remember. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Spencer's had, I think, and he's like kind of like shifted to fewer sites that earn more money. But way back in the day, like 2010, 2011, 2012, I think he had like hundreds of sites that were all making, you know, 50 bucks a month or whatever. So he used to be way on that end of the spectrum of the uh, yeah, model. That's what I'm asking. Did he change the perspective when, like, when he saw like a single site on this much money? Like, because I know in this process, it was more the specialty of like making a small site and kind of like put it online and not really touch it anymore, start another site, et cetera. And like, I was more asking, like, did it shift the vision and maybe the, the vision of the potential there when this happened? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because he saw how quickly a penny shave was growing. Um, and then later when I was working there, he saw how quickly Here Pup was growing. And we started to try to work on some similar projects. I think a penny shave kind of changed the view on... Or for me, it was a transition from niche site to authority site. You know, it was like... it helped facilitate the evolution of my own view. And I think it did that to a lot of people who are following along, including Spencer. So I don't really know, but I have seen that just in Spencer's approach to businesses, you know, like trying to go after the bigger fish rather than having lots of small stuff. Okay. About August 24th. So I've got this site and it's earning $4,000 a month. At this point, I have stopped working at the consultancy. I've started working with Spencer building websites full-time. $4,000 a month at the time, though, is still basically a second salary for me. And coming from where I came from when I was a kid, but also when I was like really broke in Chicago, it was an absurd amount of money to me. But what mattered most wasn't just having a bunch of money in my bank account. It was more that for the first time in my life, I didn't have to worry about money and that I had the freedom to do all the stuff that I was never able to do. You know, like I could go on vacations and do all this sort of stuff. So this $4,000 a month like meant a lot to me. It also like was really exciting to see the $4,000 a month coming in and to think about the potential of the site. So it was this ongoing dream that I had. And when I woke up the morning, I think it was August 24th, 2014. When I woke up on the morning of August 24th, 2014, and I checked my traffic and my affiliate dashboard, all that stuff was shattered, basically. So I log in to my affiliate dashboard as I did every morning, and I checked the commissions. And it actually had commissions from the previous day, but the clicks were, it was like zero or one. And then I 
I was like, well, you know, that's weird. I didn't think too much of it because like stuff can happen and there's reporting errors or whatever. So I logged into analytics and my traffic was like seven people organic. And I was like, what in the world is going on? I still didn't think too much of it because, you know, stuff can happen. And like I had messed up my Google Analytics install before or whatever. So I logged into Webmaster Tools and that's when I saw what had actually happened. And it like in my head, it's this big flashing red neon sign. But in reality, it was just a tiny like one line message, like thin content penalty. And that's when I started properly freaking out. And I was like, first, I was just freaking out about my own site. Like, how could this possibly happen? I'd never even heard of a thin content penalty. I had heard of sites getting penalized for Penguin and Panda. I'd never been close to it, so I didn't know anybody really who had been penalized except for Spencer, but it was like a long time ago and he'd recovered. And so like, I just had no idea what was going on. So I log into Skype, figure I'm going to just like poke around and ask some people. And my Skype is just like lit up, you know? Because at this point, I'd like made some connections in the industry and I had some friends and everybody was building sites in kind of the same way. And everybody, everybody that I knew who had been building sites like this, and I'm going to tell you what that is in a second, everybody's sites had tanked. So this is when I start to get really scared. And I log into the analytics that I shared with Spencer that contained all of the sites we had been working on since I got hired. I log in, I start checking them one by one and all of them, it's just like a straight line from like the traffic that had been there to nothing. So in this one morning, I wake up, not only is my entire like revenue stream from my own website gone, but everything that I've been working on for my job is gone. And so I have to like, text Spencer and I never texted Spencer. I would only like chat him when he woke up because he was a few hours behind me. I like text him and like wake him up and be like, dude, like all of our sites are just like, it's all gone. And it was just like this devastating day. And you know, like there's, it was just like a week of basically walking through a fog. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. It was like breaking up with somebody, you know, like if you've ever had that feeling where you just like get dumped and you don't really understand why and you just like can't get over the sunken heart feeling, that's basically what it was for a whole week. Did I know you back then? I think it, I did the podcast around this period, right? With In this process, right? We knew each other, but we, we weren't friends until... Yeah, we didn't talk so much, yeah. Yeah, we weren't really friends until like a month after this. But, yeah. this, was, but this is why we became friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you'll, you'll tell it later, I'm sure. So we started investigating, and what we found was there was a commonality in all of the sites that had tanked. And it was this network of PBNs we had all been using called Rank Hero, which was created by the guys at No Hat Digital. And I'm not trying to call them out here because like before this huge like round of Google Slaps happened, everybody was using PBNs. Everybody is firmly on the side of PBNs. Excuse me. Except go look at, yeah, except you guys. Everybody in the niche site world, like not the corporations and stuff, even though some were, but everybody in our little world was so gung ho about PBNs. And if you go look at the niche site project two posts that I wrote, I'm 100% 
advocating PBNs. I'm like, why would anybody ever use anything besides PBNs? Link building is too hard. It's so easy. We can just use Rank Hero or whatever. But Rank Hero was this huge network of private blog networks. And if you don't know what a PBN is, a PBN is basically buying an expired domain that has authority, putting a website on it, and then writing an article and linking to your own site. This is against Google's terms of service because they don't want people creating their own links. They want links to be awarded by other webmasters for good content or for valuable resources. So PBN kind of goes against their whole philosophy. It's basically a form of like buying links. Not only was I using PBNs, I was using a public link network that was like heavily advertised, like a dumbass. And when we started looking into it, we saw that everybody who would use this was or had been slapped. So it was like this massive wake-up call to all these niche site builders who had lost their entire revenue stream overnight that Google was savvy to PBNs and they were going to go after them hard. It was like Google sending a message, right? And maybe we're not that important. I like to think that Google was saying, guys, this is not going to fly. Looking back on it now, I really feel like I didn't truly understand the risks. And if you know me and you know the content I write and you know how I am on the podcast, you know that I every chance I get, I rail against PBNs. And this is one of the reasons. It's because I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through. Can you guys hear the lawnmower driving by my window? No, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. But I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through. And when I was using PBNs, I didn't understand the risks. I understood that they worked, but I but Google, who was like this huge nebulous like entity, they almost felt like the Borg, you know, or like Cylons or something. Like I knew they were out there. I never thought they would come for me. And that was until they did. The number $120,000 comes from like the value of the site if I were to have sold it back then. In reality, I probably lost a lot more than that in terms of the revenue that the site would have generated and maybe having grown it because it was on like a very steep growth path. I think that site could have been a 10-figure site because it was so small and it was earning $4,000 a month. And you know, I could have grown it to something much, much, much bigger very, very, very easily had this Why not happened. Why did you rebuild a site in the same niche if it was so profitable? I have this thing where <laughs> if I get my heart broken, I just want to not look at whatever broke my heart ever again. <laughs> So like my first girlfriend, when she broke up with me, I just left America and went to Thailand for the summer. Uh, (laughs) And we basically never talked again, even though she's a great person. And like we could have probably still been relatively good friends. And with the shaving site, I looked at it as an opportunity to move on. And that's kind of where we started becoming friends, Gail. So I was like, I got my makeup site or something at some point that just after. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I bought a makeup site that had like a few links and had some age on it. I tried to get that increased traffic and revenue. I really wasn't able to do that. But I had been using PBNs and I was like, okay, this obviously isn't the way to go. And I think Spencer even wrote a big blog post titled, okay, Google, you win. I'll never use a PBN again. So we were did both change the industry actually. Like I think the fact that Spencer came out and said, "Okay, I, I don't want to do this anymore." I think that um, that essentially split the industry into you know of the people that kind of like wanted to try one more time, 
And the people that essentially were like, well, if, if Spencer doesn't want to do this anymore, then maybe we don't want to do this as well. Yeah, I would maybe go even one step further. I would say it split the industry into people who were like, who really started to understand the value of white hat from a business perspective. And that's people like me. And I would started seeking out people like you. And then the other half was where the people who were like, okay, so we have to hide them even better now. You yeah. Know? But there's also branding that came out at that time that was really strong with content and kind of like made white hat more actionable too. So it's like all of these together kind of like really, it's like a lot of, formerly gray hat people moved to white hat and also at the time it's at the time when google penguin started it was really quite strong you know it started really to count like you could really get penalized and so on it was a real thing to get penalized for links especially with that thing content thing on top so it, the risk was increasing a lot and the ease of white hat was also getting a lot better you know so that at that time i think there was a huge shift in the industry a lot more than we've seen in the last 12 months yeah right? i think it was also like an actionable yeah. like as you mentioned brian dean and some others as well came up with like actual techniques that you could really use somewhat reasonable scale to do link building uh, in a white hat way versus yeah, you know I the 2011 moz style oh just build great content Kind of I was going to say, ran kind of disservice to White Hat by not being super yeah. practical, you know. I mean, I like the guy and we, we had a podcast together and so on, but it's true that he was only working for really big companies back then. And a lot of the tactics he would give, like, you know, do branding and, you know, involve the CEO for link building, etc. It was just not actionable for someone that just had bought a Bluehost account and started a website. So yeah. I think that really was a disservice for the really smaller guys, you know. I remember his famous quote where he said, my only link building tactic is the publish button. Oh, uh, yeah. Just like, Come on, Rand. <laughs> Get out yeah, of yeah. here. I mean, uh, I mean but, and you have, uh, you have people that were speaking at MozCon that came out like a few years later, essentially saying, well, Google made us lie for years, but now finally it's working, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it made us friends. It's It's why, like, I mean, after all of this happened to me, and my revenue disappeared overnight. Everything that I was working on at my job disappeared overnight. And I started to understand the extreme risk of gray and black hat tactics. And I started developing an extreme risk avoidance to those sorts of tactics in my own life. I started seeking out people who knew white hat. And the person I knew who knew white hat the best was, as our podcast intro would say, Gail Breton. You know, <laughs> thank you, thank and you for killing so, my name one more time. We started chatting on Skype. We started geeking out about SEO. I started learning about white hat tactics, and I started a, a new site in a market that Gail basically picked for me, which was the dog market. And I sat down and wrote sixty thousand words. I started really experimenting with white hat link building for the first time with that site, hereup.com, which I have since grown and sold for several hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, the rest is pretty much history from there. And I'm white hat convert. What, what do you, I'd really like to ask what you, do you guys say though. to people oh, out there who are perhaps still in the black or gray hat camp, still doing PBNs that say you just didn't do PBNs or whatever properly. If you did them right, like I'm doing, not me personally, but the person I'm pretending to be when I'm saying this, you know, it would be yeah. payday every day. 
Yeah, I feel like there are like three different types of people who like and use PBNs. And some of them are worth talking to, some of them are not worth talking to. There are the people who understand the risks and just prefer to use them because they're easier and they know that their site is likely to get penalized at some point and they have accepted that way beforehand and it's just part of their business model. So they'll build out these gray hat sites, they'll put a bunch of PBNs on them and then they will have a bunch of these sites, they're all making money and then as they get penalized, they just start building more sites. These people know about the risks and they've built it into their business model. They're not worth talking to for me because we're doing different things. There are other people who are just zealots for basically no reason that I can tell. These are like the Charles Float crowd, like the Charles Float fanboys who like rate our comments every time we publish anything negative about PBN. There or, comes the death <laughs> threats. And, and like, you know, like all these like Call of Duty style insults and stuff. These people aren't worth talking to for me because they don't have the their ears open. They've decided on a way of doing things and they don't want to listen to anybody else. The people who I do talk to about PBNs are people who are new to internet marketing. They are invested financially and emotionally and in like a lifestyle sense to their websites. They're using PBNs and they don't understand the risks. Those people are worth talking to for me because I feel like if they learn white hat techniques, they can create a better long-term business for themselves because that's what they seem to be after. So I think there are like three people, three types of people who use PBNs and like two thirds of them aren't really worth the time it takes to have that chat. But there is a very particular type of person who is using PBNs who is in the place that I was where I just didn't understand the amount of risk I was incurring by using them. Yeah, I think it's all about understanding the risk. It's like, I don't mind PBNs. It's like, they're not illegal. A lot of people like don't understand the difference between illegal and against Google's terms of service. From what I know, Google's terms of service are not the law. So if you want to use PBNs, it's perfectly legal. Just Google decides to reserve their own editorial right to not rank your website if you're using them. And if they catch you, I think Mark and I, we have more of a numbers approach. It's like, it's kind of like risk in risk management, essentially, you learn about the criticity of the risk and the percentage of probability, and you multiply that and you get a number. And essentially, it gives you the, the risk assessment of whatever scenario you're picking. So, you know, getting caught with PBNs is, is actually not super high risk these days, I would say. But if you get caught, the criticity of the, the risk, like the, real, the effect on your business is massive. So it's a very, very high risk. It's kind of the same as like nuclear energy, you know, it's like most of the time it's going to be okay, but when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. So it's kind of like the same as choosing to use nuclear for energy for a country. Uh, I love that's, that's this what PBN does. <laughs> analogy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's exactly like that. <laughs> it's but, exactly like that. Uh, I, I mean, my, my view is a little bit different in that I think the way in which white hat link building can be done at scale and the cost of that now is just so much less than it doesn't matter like how cheap you get your your PBN sites. It's less than the cost of domain. Um, so you know you can't really get much cheaper than that on, on your PBN. So yeah. What did you guys see when you were doing the agency? Was there a time when you were using PBNs 
Like no, I mean, we were even sites. worse. We were even no, worse than I that. Mean, we were using like uh, all the automated link building tools, article marketing robot, unique article wizard, Linkvana, these like services. Yeah, you'd, you'd like uh, spin spin an article and just it would blast it out to a bunch. Of, I guess that's kind of like a, a PBN in a way, but not in what they would be um, regarded as now. And then, you know, overnight, basically all of them just stopped working and you know half our or most of our clients got penalized we had to reinvent ourselves and it was at that point where it was like well we could go down the pbn path and we toyed around with it we looked into it we messed around with it a little bit thinking to create our own network of of these sites and and use that and it was really expensive, actually. If I remember, we looked at it. It was like, wow, we need to invest a lot of money. Yeah, to yeah. Do uh, and so back then, it was much easier just to do guest posts or or, or buy links, essentially, from uh, what most of them turned out to be. Uh, we did a whole podcast on that as well. So yeah, that was kind of how we avoided going going down that path. But it's a very similar story to you. You know, we had a very bad thing happen to us that we definitely didn't want to go through again, and. To use Gail's nuclear power plant analogy, we, d- we didn't <laughs> want to have another meltdown, so we uh, we went on the safe side. Even if even if at the Way time it, it was uh, that's multi-threading for you. Even at the time, if it was less efficient because we were still sort of figuring out the whole white hat link building thing, it did take us a while. But now that we're there, as I said, I think it's more efficient than any gray hat, any current. PBN gray hat link building could ever be. You know how yeah, we started white hat link building, actually? It was uh, David, who was one of our interns at the time. There was an okay post on Moz describing how to do guest posting. I gave him the URL. I'm like, oh, I'll just try to do that. And just came back like a, a few a few days later and then just debriefed with him and then did a bit myself, etc. But it was literally, we knew nothing. We just took a blog post. Like, you can take some of ours. We talk a lot about the topic. And started this way, it's like we were a hundred times less efficient than most people doing this already, but with practice, it, it got a lot better. So yeah, that was just after we had lost a lot of rankings and so on, just experimenting. So yeah, that was how we started White Hat the first time. You know, like looking back on it, it sucked so bad. I am happy it happened. I probably wouldn't have even said that a year ago. But I am really happy that it happened overall because I think if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have learned the the right way to do it. And my business just would have tanked when it was making more money and it would have hurt even worse. And it led me to become, instead of a niche site builder, to become what I consider, you know, a quote unquote real marketer where I could really build out sites that were actually valuable to the user and I can market them in a legitimate way. And I feel like that has paid off for me pretty massively in a lot of different ways. So I think in hindsight, I am happy that this crazy, terrible thing did happen to me. Do you guys feel that way about when all of your client sites tanked it? Uh, yeah, it's kind of like we sort of knew in the back of our mind that something like that could happen, but we never we, we never really while. addressed it in any serious way. And maybe it was some kind of like ego protection thing or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, we never took any action on it. It happened. It sucked. Didn't want to go through that again and didn't really want to do anything that would cause 
us to feel that was a possibility or, you know, lose sleep over, even if it was like a 0.1% chance of that happening, I still think the the meltdown possibility is too significant. See, you love that analogy. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I think like that taught me the value of experience overall. I can definitely see the difference now between the people that have been going through this and people that haven't in online marketing. It's like, and, and a lot of the crowd you've mentioned earlier, like the zealous gray hat people, they tend to be younger. They tend to not have been going through this kind of stuff. And essentially, I used to be that guy. I used to be the guy that do, does gray yeah. hat and calls the white hat people like old idiots that are just not <laughs> willing to take risks. So I used to be that guy. So like no shame. And the thing is like that essentially, that is the value of experience. It's like you get to have a wider range of, of things happening because of time. And that helps you make better decisions in the future. And and I, I have no doubt that a lot of the people that are now calling us idiots, which I'm sure there will be many after this podcast, at some point will experience something similar and a portion of them will come to similar conclusions. Yeah, I mean, and even if all so, of them do not, that's fine. I think where it's more dangerous yeah, though is if there is a newbie, someone coming into this that doesn't perhaps have the experience in, in doing the PBN. We should totally get a PBN expert on and like actually go into this in a bit more detail. And I think my Digity said yes for yeah, the podcast. So, um, we'll bring him in. so I, I think as a newbie coming into this, if you're not really kind of up on what you need to do and the precautions you, you need to take, then the risk is obviously much higher. And, you know, when you're, when you're starting out in this kind of stuff, nobody really knows what they're doing. So to advise to those people, yeah, go the, the PBN course, PBN way. I think it's a little bit less of a, uh, I don't know what the word is there, but like uh, it's, it's not really a, a good thing to advise those such people. It's asking for trouble to get irradiated. I mean, a lot of people that advise that also sell sure. PBN links, right? As I'm saying that, people will be like, oh, yeah, but you sell your course. So you're, you're also trying to sell your course saying that. Uh, don't buy our course. Buy Brian's if you, buy this if you want. I don't mind. <laughs> like, literally, I don't care. Yeah, I think we can we can slowly close it unless you have uh, any other anecdotes you want to talk about, Perrin, or maybe like looking back, I guess you said your your glad happened. Anything else that you've learned, like you've learned through that expert like through time with this experience? Uh, I think I've gained a little bit of testicular fortitude, you know, just like being able to like ride out bad situations. I also gained some confidence. If I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have been confident enough to uh, start another site. And the experiment was good for helping me see that online marketing can work and that I could do it. So, so it's not an argument for doing PBNs at the beginning. It is not an argument for doing PBNs. <laughs> and you know, like, I know that we have a very particular opinion. I hope this came across more as my own story and not like preaching against some philosophy or whatever because people do pbns for lots of different reasons and a lot of them you know a lot of folks understand the risks and there are different schools of thought so hopefully it was just uh, a glimpse into parents past okay great if you are if you want to get the notes on parents past you can go on atarihacker.com slash parent origins and I guess next week, if nothing cataclysmic happens, we will be talking about the death and rebirth of micro niche sites, which I think is a good segue from, from this one, because I do believe that like more niche-focused sites actually are making a bit of a comeback on 
search and i think we should maybe talk about some examples that we saw i know you had one in dog niche and so on so i've seen many also doing keyword research i'm, so I'm we'll looking forward about to the death and rebirth so, analogies for that one i have envisaged i'm already working on it uh yeah. anyway thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next week bye ciao Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.